to Audit Refrain. Our guest is Ghost. James, welcome to the show. All right, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. Um, we're going to talk about uh, Behemoth. I think um, you know we're talking about music and, and albums that are important. I know that you've got a great body of work and a lot of great albums, but I thought examining the first full proper album would be good um, to hear about. Now we've got about, what, six years of perspective on it, and a lot has happened since then. So what I'd like to do is get a background on your life up to that point. What led into Behemoth? How did that come to be? Um, so it's uh, kind of, you know, we've talked about it on Paradise, but um, I was, I'd been playing a metal band, you know, since I was 14 up until Behemoth. And I got just generally sick of uh, collaborating with people and having other people say, I don't like this riff, or waiting for them to show up for practice, or depending on them to be at a recording studio, or just even having to use a recording studio in general. So um, I think I had heard um, Cross by Justice, and then watched the movie Drive, and it seemed like a really feasible thing to do, because of how, you know, even in like 2000, 11, 2010, computers had gotten to a point where you, all you needed was a laptop and some software. And I'd also just had my second child, and I just needed to spend more time at home. So, so making music on a computer. And that's pretty much how it started. And up to this point, you had three EPs released, right? Cool. You had. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm getting a little confused with the timeline but yeah but the EPs really all happened within like I want to say like six months of each other it was really quick um, so doing an album was there did you have like a theme in mind like I'm going to build an album or was it just like a collection of tracks that you stitched together how did how did it fit into the album so the way it all happened was um, Perturbator signed with our music and we were actually talking to a, a few other metal labels at the time, or he was. And, you know, he he actually pushed for me to, for the guy from Blood Music to listen to music. And he didn't necessarily, he, he didn't not like it, but he thought it needed some direction. And I had like a shitload of tracks, and I sent them to him, and he was like, I think we've worked with this, we just gotta put it in a certain order. Um, and so I think it was like eight tracks. It wasn't the full album. And he told me, you know, write a few more tracks and send them to him. And he was like, yeah, I think this could work. And basically how that happened. That's pretty straightforward and easy, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, he was uh, he's small label, so it was really easy to do it. And so up to that point, you were already friends with uh, James or Perturbator through the internet, I take it. And, yeah. Um, yeah, actually, he reached out to me after I released my first couple of EPs and said something really cheesy like, oh, man, us dark guys got to stick together. <laughs> <laughs> did, I, did I tell you he listened? To, I bet he told you that he listened to our episode. He actually said, Oh, did he? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, 
I, I mean, dark I, guys got to stick together. <laughs> I don't. I don't think people like realize it. Like, uh, like how good of friends some of us are, and we, uh, you know, like he's one of the only people that makes sense uh, music that I I pay attention to, and I I listen to some of the interviews he's done, and uh, and of course everything he releases, and it's vice versa. Like we talk all the time, so. That doesn't surprise me. I'm sure he listened to that just to have ammunition to talk to. <laughs> that's what a true friend is, ultimately. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's really a cool, you know, a, a friendship to have and basically kind of vouch for you to get into an initial record deal. Was that something that you had experienced before? Like, had you ever been even signed to a small record label or you just been kind of... Um, yeah, so the first three EPs, there was his girlfriend records, which is Eric Sparrow, uh, who, Sparrow, uh, I think it's, I think it's Sparrow, like S-F-F-E-R-O or something. He's, uh, one of the early template producers. I don't think he does much anymore, but back when, like, you know, um, what was the label that had it was like Perpetual 101, Perturbator, all these guys. Was he was kind of involved in that. And um, he uh, he signed uh, the, the, the ST um, uh, EP. Uh, yeah. I think, does that answer your question? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, just like with, with being in metal, because I'm curious, like, that's got to be a really cool feeling to be to be pursued or have the ability to get signed because I mean it kind of seems like a, a a dream like I put music out someone likes it enough to put it out that's a thing definitely yeah it was wild um, like I, I think I told you guys the last time we talked that the synthwave people really um, in the beginning they 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 took me in with open arms uh, they wanted to not only welcome me to their scene, but, you know, help me with production and things like that. And, um, it was a lot of the early guys. Uh, but yeah, uh, Eric is one of those guys. Uh, if you haven't heard his music, you should listen to it. Girlfriend Records, Sparrow. It's uh, more along the lines of like, I don't know, maybe Miami Nights 1984, a little darker. But it's good. Yeah, that's sweet. So, you you get signed, you get a sort of a, a coherent track list together. How did you arrive on the title Behemoth, and how did the the final package come together? Um, Behemoth just came from the the, the title track on the album. Uh, the album artwork, um, actually Josh from Blood Music was uh, very, uh, very involved early on, and. You know, I already had this skull mask as an idea for the project, and I'd already played shows in the skull mask, small shows. Um, but uh, actually, kind of a fun fact: I played um, South by Southwest at this little tiny venue, uh, probably a year before Behemoth came out, and uh, can't think of her name, but the woman in Drive. Yeah. So Carrie... whatever she she was, uh, yeah, Carrie she was Mulligan. at the fucking show. Gary Mulligan, yeah, she was in the show. Wow, that's Years wild. Ago. Yeah. Cool. That's all. <laughs> so I was trying to, like, put on a performance, but she was just standing there in the small bar, and I was like, man, you're like, what are you, what are you doing in here? Anyway. <laughs> that's kind of like... Uh, but so... Yeah. 
but so like for the the visuals, I think it was Josh's idea from Dead Music uh, originally to theme it around uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes, that's what I that's what I get off of the off of it because Kyle and I um, were you know in preparation for the episode, uh, looking at the artwork. And Kyle, will you admit to something? Are you, you going to own it? I'll always, yes. So we, <laughs> always. Were, we were looking at the record together, and I'm like, you know, it's really cool because Behemoth is spelled right out on the front of the record, like in the thing, and he goes, what? And he literally, literally just noticed it when I told him. Like, I mean, six yeah, years. multiple copies of this album. I've been, like, listening to it for quite some time. I never fucking noticed that. That's it. It's like a metal, uh, a metal logo, a metal band logo. But it's hidden in there. It's in the ice. Yeah, actually, uh, that was done by Fortifum, who's done, like, Carpet Brute, Perturbator, all of our work, and uh, they had things uh, throughout. Uh, I think in um, Non-Paradisi, my kids' names are hidden throughout on the back artwork, the back cover. See, that's cool. Is there any other hidden little treasures in this? You don't have to say what they are. Not, just... not, not in Behemoth, no. Okay, because like it's hard to tell because some of it it's very metal. So I, you know, you could maybe almost make out some other stuff. All right. So. No, no, that's what it is. I'll admit to another thing too. Like when we were doing an examination of it last weekend, I was just like, you know, I knew that there is a, you know, it's a skull on there, and there's this sweet red light coming out of it, but I never noticed there was actually like bits of the skull exploding off the top. Yeah. Yeah, four of them, man, their their work is amazing, and it's only gotten better. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it it stands the test of time, and it's kind of one of those things, like, how do you look at it now in, in retrospect, you know, six years on, like? Um, honestly, I think that's probably the first older release of mine that I still have. I can still stand it. Um, you know, the only thing that bothers me about it is that it it's what, basically everything else I do is compared to. So like it, every time I release something, people are like, oh, I just want to do another behemoth. And it's, like, it's already there. Yeah. Just go listen to the just record. listen to it on repeat. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And that's kind of why I wanted to also do this record because I think people are always, I think, going to have a strong, well, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? And I think like this could be your definitive uh opinion piece you just like oh you want to hear me talk about it here it is i've talked about it um so with the imagery obviously it's dark you've got the upside down cross on there was that you know kind of the vaguely satanic sort of imagery is that kind of tying into like the the persona and the vibe that you're going for yeah i mean we i had already started that with um the ep that came out before that the stp is um Anton LaVey's house and I think the original headquarters for the Church of Satan. So, um, we were, a few of us were already doing that. All of us that came from a metal background uh, were already tapping into metal imagery because it just seemed kind of obvious at the time. No one else was doing it. Yeah. And it was, why not make electronic? You know what we like. Put, put, put what we like about metal into electronic music, and the, uh, especially the imagery, because at the time none of us were playing shows like big shows, and that was all we had was like the album covers. Like 
you know, this is what we're about. Kind of thing. And so there's kind of like uh, maybe a nostalgic homage to stuff you grow up with because that's you know, metal band. If you're, you know, not quite old enough yet to go to a concert, that's all you have. You've got, there's not necessarily music videos depending on, I know there's a time folks are like, there weren't music videos for stuff. But, you know, if you're in a metal, you're not necessarily going to see, a, you know, a music video for that thing. You've just got the album artwork to go off of besides the music itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially, you know, down to your, you know, that I grew up in. That, that's all we had. Liner notes were huge when I was growing up. You know, even during CDs, it was like the liner notes could almost make an album if, you know, they had like, on the scenes, pictures and notes from the band. It was always like a, you know, now you can watch a live video on Instagram, but back then that, that, that was our only insight into the band. Yeah, I remember doing the exact same thing with CDs and records is like going through all the liner notes and the thank yous and figuring out who produced it and who the engineer was and just trying to get like insight into the band because that's it. You just had the music and the, that album so absolutely um and i and i appreciate with you know with blood and, and with those initial early days like it's bringing that back so obviously with like perturbators release and dynatron and the, the stuff that he had going on early then uh with yourself like bringing that back as such a an important thing and obviously i think that helped push blood music to where it you know where it became um so it's really a love letter i appreciate the love letter to the format basically the physical format yeah yeah, yeah. so we are going to talk about track number one off of behemoth beyond tell me tell us about this track and what went into anything This is Com Trues, and you are listening to the Paradise Arcade. Okay, so actually, um, it's there is a sample buried in the mix. Uh, I believe um, it's from the movie. I'm looking it up because I don't remember exactly. Because it's like a '70s. I think it's called From Beyond, uh, 86. But I think, no, I think there's an earlier version of it. And it's about basically like, um, um, you know, like ghosts and possessions. And there's a, there's a part, you probably can't hear it. You, maybe you can after I tell you. Uh, right before it starts to build up into the next track, it uh, says Speed Lead. And it's kind of like, uh, Precursor to like um, Hellraiser, where you kind of have to feed the corpse to bring it to life. And uh, I believe the movie's called From Beyond. I could be wrong, but I think it is. I think that's why the track's called Beyond. Right on. So with the uh, <laughs> so with this ahead, track, yeah. was it like did the inspiration come? Did you do the music? How did the two things um, interact with each other? I think it was just a way to tie the album together to begin with, um, just to have, you know, to where you could listen to it as a full album. Uh, having an intro track, I, I still think it's like 
super effective. Uh, a lot of people still do it. Um, uh, but um, yeah, I think it was just a way to kick off the album to bring in the next track, just to make sense to release it right off the top. Yeah. So speaking of the next track, let's get into the next track. Hello, this is Dan Terminus, and you're listening to the Paradise Arcade. How do I say this? I... <laughs> Thanks for saying that, because I didn't want to do that either. <laughs> Shame on you. Shame on you. Is it? It's horror of fame. Horror of fame. Genesee Avenue. Okay, see, I, I'm right. It's an actual street in uh, Hollywood. It's where the it's the actual address of the Nightmare on Elm Street house. It's a red door. So that's sweet. So you're just throwing all sorts of like really just shit that you like and throwing it into this record. Yeah, yeah, Easter eggs, bro. Love them. You're spelling. I mean, I feel like you should put what you like into an album you're making anyway. Yeah, probably. (laughs) I mean, that's that could be fun. Um, yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about uh, Genesee Avenue. Uh, obviously, like it starts song-wise, starts the album off on a really strong um, note. So, I mean, what's how did that song come about? Um, so, I was listening to an artist. Uh, everyone, you know, likes to attribute um, the uh, staccato like. Uh, staccato heavy bass lines to um, Carpenter Brute, but um, that's not where I heard it first. Uh, let me name right now. Give me a second. <laughs> it's all good. You can edit this. Um, I haven't listened to it in years. Called the boss. Um, what a weird name. It, it, this has to be in the interview. So, okay. Figure it out. I'll figure Let's it see out. if I can. I can help here. I'll start looking. Get out of here, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah, the boss is always trying. He fucking Bruce Springsteen. Man. God, it's like on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, he's the next kid. Driving me nuts. I think we talked about him in the last interview. Um, maybe it's. Oh wait, I'm almost finished. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you know how often that happens to me? Like you, it's like right there on the precipice, and then it just di- it goes away, and you're like, "Fuck it, I lost it." I know. Can't stand it. Oh, I can't stand it. It's the worst. Hang on. Man, it's such a good track too. Not uppermost. Dude from Australia. Anyway, I'll just say this. It's a track called The Boss. I can't remember the artist's name, but um, it has the... This is probably came out in 
man, 2008, and it's got the whole like sound, 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 and like it even has like the Kavinsky vibe with like these sirens and um, you know car sounds. Uh, and I, I wish it remember the cast name because it's it's actually really good, and his newer stuff is really good too. He released his stuff a few uh, two or three years ago. It's pretty good. Way to rep uh, the rep the guy. <laughs> I know it sucks. <laughs> it sucks because it's. But I mean, he never really he didn't have a chance because he he came out around the same time that Justice was doing their thing, and so anything that sounded similar, you know, kind of got swept under the rug. Isn't that weird how that works? Where like it's one it's one band or one act that gets to fulfill that thing, and then everyone else just is like doesn't get it. I, it it really sucks. The box. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all, and some motherfucker is gonna be like, "How the fuck did you guys not know this?" And like, call me out, call us all out, actually. Man, I don't think we can move on to our favorite show. I can like actually sing the lyrics. It's like this is really repetitive. Give me two seconds. There's one by Diana Ross. <laughs> Not Diana Ross. <laughs> it's like when you say Australian artist, I I can't. There's I can only think of one, and it's definitely not it. Um, Donny Benet. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's like e- something even somewhat sort of close. I mean, Power Glove is the only thing I could think about of Australia. No, no, no. It's- it's way heavier. Um, but yeah, I was just gonna say I would know it wouldn't be that. I, I can't I can't go on if I don't think of it. It's cool. Give me just a moment. Literally, this is I I probably have days of editing ahead of me, so it's fine. That's fine, and I'm gonna distract you with another question while you're looking for that, not related to the show or anything, just a question I want to ask. Since you brought up Cross by Justice. I, it, did you get into any of their later stuff? Uh, no, man. I thought they kind of, I, I get, you know, kind of what they're doing, and I, I, I appreciate the the depth of it. But what I liked about them initially was how abrasive and or just the chances they took production wise. Nothing sounded like that. No, uh, I feel like they released too good of an album as their first album. It was just like, how do you follow up with that? I don't know. It's true. Oh, redial. There we are. Redial. Redial. Redial the boss. I'm gonna. I need to take a note of what time we figured that. Okay, forty forty eight minutes into it, we figured it out. Redial. Oh, it's ridiculous. That was <laughs> <at> ten minutes. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm writing it down. Yeah, me too. Yeah, write it down because uh, there's a part you'll hear. And I think the song came out like literally 10 years ago, uh, maybe longer, 12 years ago. And the whole, you know, heavy distorted bass that we all use with the uh, staccato jumps in it. Um, everybody gives credit to Carpenter Brew, but he didn't come up with it. This guy did. And that's where I heard it first. And the track is amazing. You'll love it. You'll love it. It's got three sirens and. Gunshots and heavy 
what would be some dark wave bass? That's awesome. Is it um, one of those? Because like when I he- think of like m- sirens and music, I think of like ministry and and a lot of the industrial kind of. No, it's more like a you know like a speeding like a Kavinsky like police siren type of thing. Gotcha. So it's like you have the whole cars racing like on a drag sample and then the cops following them there's like gunshots and stuff it's, it's very man i mean it's it's probably heavily influenced by Kavinsky, uh the early stuff but the heavy bass um he was a great way to do it and when you're making that song did it just like did it just come together i mean i'm just curious about your your music process do you agonize your tracks actually, or I do, I do. I mean, I, sometimes the track takes me six weeks to, to finish uh, its production and everything. But with that album, there was more of like a desperation in my writing. You know, now I feel like I have a little room to take to take time and and really look at a track and maybe make changes later on. But with that album, I wanted to. We were all starting this new thing, and I wanted to get in on, you know, the ground floor. And so I was really working quickly. Uh, I think I was, I was quite a bit younger, so I was, I would stay up. I would start working at like, you know, like nine in the morning and work until like five, five a.m. and just constantly. Because at the same time, I was figuring out how to be an engineer because I didn't know anything about any of that stuff, mastering any of that so half of that was just me constantly listening to it going back and forth from the studio to the car to my headphones to figure out how the Ed Banger artists were getting that bright over compressed loud sound ended up being really easy to (laughs) (laughs) you know you didn't know shit at the time and what's crazy you're married you've got your second kid and you're you're working late at night. I mean, how did you have any amount of energy at all? Man, I didn't. I was, dude. That was a. To be honest, it was like pretty low point in, in my life. Um, uh, psychologically, I was. Uh, I don't know if depressed is the right word, but I was, you know, drinking a lot. Not that that's changed too much, but I was drinking a lot. I was drinking a lot till 5 a.m., which, you know, that never works out well, especially when you have responsibilities the next day. Um, but it was just really, it took a toll on me uh, mentally, like how much effort all of that took. You know, people like to say that like, uh, music is just pushing buttons and it's easy to do, but man, everything that goes in behind the scenes uh, is so unbelievably complicated. Staring at a computer screen, I would much rather practice tricks on a guitar than figure out a program. And I'm still, you know, figuring it out today. Right, because it changes and those tools can be so complex that you just use it enough to get by to accomplish the thing, which don't really actually know what the fuck you're doing. Absolutely. And early on, that's definitely what I was just trying to make it loud. And with Genesee Avenue, um, you know, it's got a, a nice John Carpenter S arpeggio in it. Um, I thought I just wanted it to be heavy and loud and a basic rock. Right. Uh, I think you hit on something that I'd like to explore, which is like you 
you wanted to get on the ground floor of this thing. Did you have a sense then that there was a there was like a, a wave coming and you wanted to be a part of that? The excitement and energy? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I didn't I didn't think it was gonna be a thing, but it was a thing to me. Like the things I was hearing, um, you know, even before I heard Percolator or any of the dog stuff, I just it just struck a nerve, and I wanted to be a part of it. And at at whatever level, you know, even if it had just remained us just releasing stuff on Bandcamp, that's that's all. I was fine with that. I didn't expect it to go anywhere else, but I knew that I liked it. And I mean, you know, early on, I didn't have any friends that liked it. That that came later, but so I just I, it it really spoke to me. And, you know, fuck man. The movie Drive, the opening scene with Kavinsky's Nightfall. It, it just kind of solidified all that for me. I was just like, this is this has potential. Yeah, that that movie. Uh, how was that movie for you? Because like when I saw it, like, and I think Kyle could agree because we were, I think, talking about it when it came out. Like, it really struck a nerve in a way that it just hadn't been felt in a long time it got me excited about music again like i think drive when that uh, movie came out like i was excited about music again like i wanted to know all about ed banger and and kavinsky <laughs> and go down that that road like what is this and Absolutely. it just reignited a and i love that movie and i you know i've watched all of nicholas winding reffin's movies since um, yeah yeah no i think that guy's um, i don't know who he worked with for his you know, music, but um, he for a minute there he had his finger on the pulse. You know, uh, I think that movie Bronson opens up with that crazy scene where it's got Glass Candy playing. I think it's uh, Violent Technicolor, Technicolor, sorry, and it's just like a really driving, almost synthwavey song, and it's so it works so well. Mm -hmm. It's wild how well synth music still works in movies. You know, they don't use it much anymore, but it's still, I think they're missing out. It works so well. Yeah, I agree. And it's like, in for a moment when Drive, because it was like the first movie that was like an art house movie that blew up huge, that wasn't, that didn't have like some sort of happy ending. You know, it wasn't like Slumdog Millionaire, and it wasn't, you know, like, it was kind of bleak from the beginning, and at the end it was bleak. And those kinds of movies, I don't think, at least then, didn't really resonate huge the way that movie did. No, they don't. Man. People want people want things to be happy. And I thought it was man. Maybe it sounds a bit pretentious, but that movie that movie's pretty poetic. Mm -hmm. I think you couldn't have gotten a better person than Ryan Gosling to play the part. And you know, all he needs to do is smolder. Look, look concerned. Did either but the ending, yeah. man, the ending. Oh my god! With the with the college song playing. Oh man, such a, I think it's. Do they call it with college or is it the human being song? I think it's. Um... The the human being one was in an earlier when he was driving with what's her name and the kid. That's right. Which is what's the band that does that? They're really good too. They had a Electric of, Youth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, Some of that stuff was 
man, I think it was some of the best early synthwave period as far as the lighter stuff goes. I don't think anybody really fucks with it. Yeah. They just released a, an album with Pilot Priest for the Come True soundtrack. Which I'm really could curious. be hot. Yeah, it could be hot. I'm real curious to see hear what it sounds like. So, you know. That's not what we're here to talk about. No. <laughs> we're doing we're hey, hey you're the one reining it in now. Wow, impressive. I don't know, because I just wanted to say, like, remember when What's-Her-Name got her face shot off in slow motion and drive? That was really sweet. Man, that, the brutality of that movie. Brutality when of... he smashes that dude's yeah. fucking face in the elevator, my wife just looked at me like, what the fuck are we watching? And I was like, I don't know, but it's awesome. All his movies are that way, my God. Um, yeah. Valhalla Rising, um, Jesus, they're all... Yeah, Bronson. I, ha- I think... The only ones I haven't seen are like the Pusher trilogy. I don't know if you guys have seen those movies. Those are. No, like, I, I don't think I watched that. Yeah, those are his first three. So that's really, you know, it's great insight background into kind of where you were at and how, what your headspace was and sort of um, what some influences were. Let's take uh, a quick break. We're going to uh, put in the track for y'all to listen to now that we talk about it so much. We'll come back and we'll talk about it. This is Cody Carpenter, and you're listening to the Paradise Arcade. All right, so let's get into Nightcrawler. So, uh, how did this track come about? Any interesting thoughts on it? Um, Nightcrawler is, um, I think, one of my more uh, obviously synthwavy sounding tracks. You know, yeah. it's that kind of the, the formula that became modern synthwave, I guess. Um, I don't really know where I was coming from, other than just writing a simple, uh, catchy song. Um, Nightcrawler itself comes, there's, a, there's an 80s movie, maybe late 70s, called The Nightcrawler. And um, it's about, this, I think it's fucking World War II vet that like goes on a killing spree in his like gas mask World War II gear. Um, I don't really remember why he does it. Why do why do white dudes kill people? Because you know, they're white. I don't know. Because they're, they're, yeah, they're white. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> It's so hard. It's so hard being white. But um. The movie, yeah, basically centers around I think one of, like kind of like a prom night situation. It's one of the early first like teenage slasher films. Uh, so yeah, I mean that's where the name comes from, and the song itself, the melody, are more like you know coming from like how college was writing his music at the time with like simple one on off um, baseline arpeggios. Like just simple uh, sawtooth lead. Do you, um, let me ask you this. I've heard this. I don't know if it's true, but it's really hard to write a good, simple song. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard in the sense that, like, it's hard to make it sound like your own thing because 
it, it's so simple. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really hard to describe. I mean, when I wrote when I wrote Nightcrawler, it wasn't like anything I put a lot of thought into. Uh, you know, like since writing it, if I try to write a song that simple again, it's got a catchiness to it that I don't know if I can really do again in the same way without it sounding almost identical. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it it really does. It's one of those things now, like looking back on, on the music, do you see where like you could improve on tracks or like, or things that you've done different, would have done differently? Yeah. And then uh, nowadays, like, you know, especially the last couple of records and even starting with like Possessor, I, I, I go back to songs before I release them several times and add things, add new details. And I think where Behemoth suffers, uh, where people might actually think it works, is that it's quite simple throughout. Um, very straightforward. You know, one part goes into the next. We're talking about simple arpeggios, simple, the whole structure of the song. Uh, songs throughout are very simple. Um, if I was to redo Behemoth, it would be much more complicated, much more, um, there'd be a lot more instrumentation involved. And, but, I mean, that might take away from it. I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, does it does it remain Behemoth at that point? You know, when you start messing around with too much stuff. No, probably not, dude. I mean, that, like I said, that, that album was... I, was I, I mean, I write really quickly anyway. I think, you know, the last um, validation came out in October, and the new one's coming out un in under a year from now. I think I wrote it in like six, seven months. It's impressive. Um, it's just like when I get started on something, I, 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 it's insatiable. I have to finish it. And I, I work on it constantly to the detriment of my personal life, relationships, uh, they, everything takes a back seat to, uh, what I'm writing, and uh, Behemoth was that way. Behemoth was maybe more that way than any of the, uh, the other ones because, like I said earlier, I was figuring out uh, production skills, engineering skills that I had, no one taught me. I just had to spend hours on the computer to figure it out. Uh, so I don't know. I think maybe if I wrote it differently, yeah, it would be the rawness of it. Uh, yeah, and one of the th things I want to touch on, um, like, overall like your vibe you do a different thing i think than a lot of other um darker and i'll even group in metal into that where um you don't you kind of play it straightforward with the the horror and kind of the um themes of it where like carpenter brute seems to have like i don't know like a wink and a nod a little bit an absurdity to some of his stuff, like the imagery and, and that kind of a thing, where this seems like a lot more like sincere. Or not, I don't know if sincere is the word for it, but like straightforward and kind of like you're not, there doesn't seem to be winking and nodding. It's m more of just a straightforward homage and seriousness to it. Is that intentional? Absolutely. How you want to play it? No, it's very intentional, dude. Um, I don't know. Um, I guess as goofy as it sounds, horror movies have always been a huge part of my life. I think early on, when I was younger, they scared me, and I wanted to conquer that fear. And once I did, I started to love them, and I wanted them to get more and more 
Pratt, uh, John Carpenter, Arpeggio, it's not a wink. It's it's absolute adoration. And so, yeah, I, I, maybe uh, Frank Carpenter does those things as kind of a funny thing. But for me, it definitely comes more from a real place because so many horror movies have defined parts of my life and gotten me out of weird depressing moments in a weird way because they're depressing movies but you know they're fantasies right but yeah i take it i, I take the art of some of those guys very seriously john carpenter you know bradley all of those guys early on um, it meant a lot to me and it still does you know even though they you know make jokes uh, about their movies now and how they hate them uh, it, it was a big shift um, culturally for everyone back then. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not a wink and a nod. It never has been. It's still not now. Uh, every album I've approached or EP is directly, you know, from from the heart. So I have a better way to put it. It means a lot to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've got a, another one that I think is is perfect is um what is what's the horror movie that you saw growing up that was the thing that really and not necessarily the thing <laughs> but like that really solidified your interest in horror please please say it's the thing it was the thing no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> it was not my home street the first one i think it was like five and i was supposed to be in bed uh i was going to be in trouble if i wasn't because my brother and his friends were um watching it and I stayed up and watched it and you know it kind of wrecked me no shit weeks. Jesus but I think I was like five but um that really made an impact and and not just you know the movie but the soundtrack itself is some of the you know early it's almost John Carpenter-esque it's, it's a very synthesized soundtrack um and yeah I don't know man I think maybe that may have been eventually why I was drawn to bands like Depeche Mode, you know, you know, like Black Celebration by Depeche Mode. That could yeah. be a, a horror movie. Easy. Yeah, Depeche Mode, like that middle air, 80s era, what a shift. And it, it's amazing stuff. And there was no one doing what they were doing, at least at that time, you know, being pop music, but also being very dark. Yeah. All right. So moving on to Master. Hi, this is Das Mortal, and you're listening to the Paradise Arcade. Thoughts about this track, how to come about. Um, it's, it's, it's so long. It feels like 20 years ago. Um, but Masters, uh, I think it's one of the more abrasive maybe uh the only more abrasive track on the album is behemoth um but masters definitely more about you know the whole early stuff with ghost was coming from a tongue-in-cheek relationship with satan and so i think master is talking about the devil it's edgy i know but um uh, the pull down strings in the track i think i wanted to 
I think I may have actually pulled them from like an old, um, uh, not like Saturday Night Fever, but an old disco movie. I can't remember what example it is, but probably good because I can't get sued. But, um, <laughs> I don't recall. <laughs> but uh, that definitely is like my answer to, I guess, uh, stress by Justice. You know, uh, yeah. very. Cause it's, a, it's a very stressful song. It's not, it's it's catchy, I guess, but it still has like a an edge to it that makes you feel a bit uneasy. You know, if you if it's like three o'clock in the morning, you've been drinking, you've been watching horror movies, and you listen to Master at full volume, there's a good chance it's not gonna help you. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you? I'm really curious. Do you write music with like a specific? I want it to have this mood. I want it to convey this feeling or this atmosphere. Early on, like during Behemoth and stuff, definitely. Uh, nowadays, I just kind of let it flow, which may or may not work in my favor. But for, back then, yeah, I definitely had like, what I would do is uh, when I would start a song, I would pick a few songs that I like by artists and have a general this is the direction I want to go next thing. And it would end up usually not being, uh, not turning out that way, but it helps me get motivated. Or nowadays, I'm just a little bit more comfortable with songwriting, but I just kind of let it happen. So it happens. But back then, for sure, I, I would have an idea. Like, yeah, this track needs to sound, or well, I want this track to sound like so-and-so. And I want the arpeggio to sound like the arpeggio from such and such Carpenter movie, you know, which is quite easy because right. I think even John Carpenter himself will admit that he's a horrible songwriter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, arpeggios are easy, you know, you just plug a few notes in and it's a loop. It's, it's not difficult. You just have to, you know, find the right notes. So yeah, back then, definitely, I had definite influences I was pulling from when I would start a track. All right. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting uh, to hear your, your um, compare and contrast to where you started and, and where you're at now um, with songwriting and how things come together. And do you find it easier now to, that you just, is it more that you just trust yourself and you just let it happen? I don't know, man. It's weird because I've tried to think back on the new album I just did. It just kind of happened. And like now I'm looking back on it and listening to it. Basically, it's version ears. Like it, it's like I didn't, it's like I wasn't present. So now, yeah, I guess things just kind of happened. And I don't know, you know, it was during the pandemic that I wrote this. I probably wrote it every six months and it just, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I'm going to do it again. Um, but there's some comfort in that. Because back in, you know, when I was writing things like Bohemian, I had like a very structured idea of what I wanted to do. And now it's just, it just kind of falls out. And I look back and I'm like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> how am I going to play this live? Wow. So was there even hints of that with like Behemoth or even now? Do you 
incorporate live elements like i'm going to do this thing live like or this you know like or is that not really a factor at all jerry behemoth definitely not but now that i've been playing live for several years yes every song i'm thinking what parts can i do live how am i going to make this work in an entertaining way because you know jerry behemoth that was before any of us record, so i had no idea you know, that we were going to be playing in front of shitloads of people at, at some point. Uh, it, was, it was obviously something I wanted to, but it was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, playing in metal bands for years before, it just, you know, playing in metal bands, like nobody comes to the show, nobody cares. Yeah, right. <laughs> Unless you're like <laughs> fucking Mastodon or whatever, but uh, so I just kind of gotten used to the fact that my musical career was just going to be for me and things that I was writing. And so back then, I wasn't thinking about doing it off live, which is why the older tracks are the ones that are going to sound much less live in a live environment, because a lot of it I just can't recreate. Do you have, like, for that old stuff, do you... I suppose it's not just... It's not structured to play live or the files and things like that or how or you, you can't even really necessarily recreate it um in real time is that what i'm hearing well sort of i mean i feel like on the next tour if that ever happens yeah, um i'm gonna have to go back through all those old files with the game of adding a drummer and everything and so i'm gonna have to open those old files and download everything that was in them so, oh damn! It's six years ago. It's gonna be difficult to find everything. But the file, the, the skeletons are there. Are there? So it'll be interesting. Uh, it's kind of a, it's another thing to take up some time with, I guess. But yeah, up until now, uh, those songs are very structured in the way they are, and they are gonna sound like they sound on the album side. You know, with the newer stuff. It's easier because I planned for that. But back then it was like, nobody cares. Nobody's gonna care. Wow. Blood Music's gonna release those records. Nobody's gonna buy it. It's long as fuck. <laughs> <on that. laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean, so my, it's, a, it's a journey, yeah, bro. For sure. When did you, <laughs> when did you know or when did you get a sense uh, after Behemoth was released, that it it might be a thing, it might turn into a thing. After it sold out in 15 minutes, I was like, okay. You're like, oh, fuck. Yes, it worked. Oh, yeah. What do I do and now? I was like, immediately, like, yeah, oh my god, this computer's not going to be able to travel. I was using a desktop back <laughs> when I wrote that. And I was like, what? How do I do this? I mean, that was some of the early conversations between me and some of the other producers that started touring. It was like, we were all doing DJ sets in the beginning, and it, immediately we were, you know, we hated it. It was like, what the fuck? Are we, what are, we're not doing anything. And and people would notice. People would like leap over the petition uh, to see what we were doing. And it's like, yeah, man, we have like a console that you you could spend fifty bucks on, and a laptop. I'm pushing the space bar. Get out of here. <laughs> pretty much what was happening. And it's still pretty much what happens. I mean, 
it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's uh, Carpenter Brute in a full fucking lineup. Somebody's got to push the motherfucking face up. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> it's very not play a dog. And don't push it again because you could really fuck things up. Yeah, don't do it. That's that's do pro it. tips. That's good. <laughs> Face bar once. There's a big piece of tape with Sharpie written on it. Uh, moving on to Rain and Hell. Hey, this is Anthony Scott Burns, aka Pilot Priest, and you're listening to Paradise Arcade. Yeah, this, so this it's a great, it's almost like an interlude or a, a half thought out song or like a, it's like, it gets banging and then it ends. Yeah, you just think blood music for that. It was a full track. You know, we released the extended version on the non-PRDC bonus. It was a full track then, but for some reason he thought it would make the album flow better. Short like that, yeah. And I was kind of at his mercy at the time. You know, I had no leverage. I'd just been signed, and I was like, "Okay, he's gonna put all this money in the project, so fuck it, we'll go with that." <clears throat> so it was, it was the full version. Then I don't know what his thought process was on that. Yeah. Okay, so I I don't feel so bad because I I wrote some notes here before. And this is verbatim what I wrote down. I was like, rain and hell, like half song. So that makes a lot of sense now. And it explains everything. It is a fucking half-ass song. And it's like, you know, to me what's interesting is that it's it's kind of a banger. And why would you, I guess, sort of castrate that song in the middle? I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, that's why that track ended up being shorter. I mean... The full track was already written. Um, and that track, actually, uh, there's a danger track called... Oh my god. How can I even look it up? Because these tracks are named after fucking hours and stuff. Yeah, it's what a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> number H, number something. Yeah, yeah I know. H420. No, uh, that's one of the only... Guys. No, no, that's a good one. It's a very good track, but not that uh, hang on, I'll look it up. I think it's 22... Yep, that's it. 2239. Can you hear it? Yep. Yeah. That's what it would be. We'll get the vibe. So it's kind of going for that. And then it was like one of Danger's... Um, one of the first tracks he kind of stopped being so electro on and went more for like a thematic vibe. And so... Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly what that, that, that song is inspired by. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, it's too bad that it got cut. And, I mean, people can get it. You can go on Bandcamp and I think type in Secret Arcana EP and grab it, get the full version of it. Yeah. So it's, it's available. And, uh, you know, I think everyone agrees that's the version you should listen to. Absolutely. The first version sounds unfinished. It doesn't make sense. You know, it's an interesting... Oh, that's like the uh, the Bill and Ted thing. Oh my god. 
<laughs> bringing it back to Bill and Ted, are we? <laughs> well, we yeah. well, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. No, no, not at Bill all. Bill and Ted is the reason I became a musician. Oh, wild That's, stallions. Yeah, they were great. That's underrated. Way. Super underrated. Dude. They saved the world. Yeah, twice. Yeah, who else can say they did that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Sting? No, I don't think so. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> I think save the world with tantric sex. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it could happen. I don't fucking. Know. I wonder if he's still like on that tip, <laughs> <laughs> figuratively and literally. Probably, man. I mean, how do you get off that shit? <laughs> I'm still talking That's about behemoth, bro. How do you? Oh. Okay. <laughs> So let's move on to tongue. <laughs> this is Lucy in Disguise, and you're listening to Paradise Arcade. talk about Tom, the track Tom. Actually, um, I have to listen to it real quick. Pop it on. Because I haven't heard it in, <laughs> in a couple years, probably. I remember it's uh, the slower, heavy one, right? I think so. Yeah, like a real slow vibe. Yes. Oh, man. That arpeggio mm. is great rip from uh, Phantasm. Oh, my God. Yeah, now that you say that. Phantasm combined with like uh, exorcist. I like that. Yeah, it's, just, it's the same thing. Um, I don't really know. Uh, I guess I was, you know, obviously going for the the classic horror vibe of the eighties, and then uh, throwing that heavy bass in. You know, I just figured out that heavy bass, and so I was putting it on everything, and. Now it's become kind of my signature. It has to be somewhere on every album. And people are like, well, it doesn't sound like you, man. Where's the heavy bass? It's like, <laughs> How do you... Not that cool. Yeah. So, it's, you know, your particular, that bass, uh, is, it's really interesting. And I think for people that, that are non-musicians, it's really hard to not muddy a mix when you add that much bass into a thing and keep all the other things clear was that a challenge initially for you to keep things from sound washed out and shitty yeah i mean the trick is actually just um you you don't need as much bass as you think um i usually pull half like on like a three band EQ. i usually pull half of the bass out on the bass set because it opens up the mix and you get a lot of the bass feel more from just the saw sounds, that grittiness, and then the bass drum brings in the, the bass sound for you. So there's really not that much bass in that noise. It's more just dirty than bassy. And but you give the illusion of the bass with the drum and side playing. Um and that's that that song's heavily side playing, now that I think about mm-hmm. it. But, uh you know. Um, 
I don't remember why I named it Clint. That's weird as fuck. What was? Where was my head? I think. I think it's kind of a reference to. There was a local band here, a, a really good local metal band. Uh, actually, not local to where I live, but an hour from here, Freeport, Louisiana, called Classic Dog, mm. and they were super fucking good band. The vocals were incredible, and they never went anywhere. I don't know why, but um, I, I think it was. This is System 96, and you're listening to the Paradise Arcade. So, uh, up to this point, there's there's no vocals on any of these tracks, and we're leading into... Um, Without a Trace, which is the only vocal, I think, track on this whole album. Uh, when you're starting off, did you ever think like that you wanted to incorporate vocals? Um, or did you feel like this one track just needed to have vocals? How did that come about? Um, no, actually, I didn't want to do any vocals. Uh, I was coming from more of like a danger, death, funk vibe that I wanted. To be. Like even like the French. The other French guys like um, Savinsky and Death Bob. I, I just wanted it to be more of a kind of a mysterious thing and and just the music. I, I, I honestly thought we would be playing raves and shit. But uh, obviously, I mean, for good reason. They probably didn't want any part of that. Can you imagine tripping balls to behemoths? Like, that probably not be awesome. I'm not sure. That's uh, That could be fun. Or... For us, because we're fucking freaks. But anyway, <laughs> uh, no. Um, I think James had worked with Perturbator had worked with Haley already, and you know she had a. She was doing Dead Astronauts at the time before Mecha Mako, what she does now, and I mean, there's no denying her vocal talent. So um, I don't remember exactly why I reached out to her, but. Um, it just made sense with the track. That track's extremely poppy, you know. Even without her vocals, it's not kind of out of place in a way. It's very upbeat. Uh, it's no, there's nothing dark about it. Um, so you know, I showed it to her, and immediately she was like, "Fuck yeah!" And I think within a day, she recorded those vocals, and and then the track was done. So like, Haley's amazing, man. She's Probably one of the most underrated people in in some ways. Um, she's just uh, got an amazing voice, and it's effortless for her. Like she does it so quickly. I can't say enough about her, and she's a total sweetheart. Yeah, I mean, I, you those two qualities makes her you know one in a million. So um, that's really cool, and so. You didn't want to do it, so Josh, this is a Josh thing, like, you need to have a vocal track on this album? No, man, I think it happened organically. Oh, nice. Like, I think I wrote the track on accident. Like, I, I wrote it, and I was like, what the fuck is this track? Because it doesn't fit in the album, in my opinion, really, with anything else. Um, even the slower tracks on the album, other than this one, have a very dark feel to it. Uh, and it's not a dark track. 
And I think once it was written, uh, I think I just naturally was like, I'm going to get Haley to sing on it because it just makes perfect sense. And of course, she crushed it. Yes. Her vocal pattern is so, so, it's inspiring. Like, at the moment she sent it back to me, she was like, I don't know, I'm not really sure. And I was like, shut up. Perfect. You nailed it first time. Shut up. And, and I, I see it's like you might have to put some pitch correction on it, but no, man, her vocals were perfect. Shut out of the box. All I did was put a little reverb on it, and it was, it was perfect. Awesome. Like she's very talented. That's awesome. So move. So I, I've, yeah. I've got a nerd question on this. Like I'm pushing up my glasses right now. <laughs> well, you've been quite quiet, so I'm. It's not as drunk. ready to hear some questions. Seriously, so like. Digitally, the transition from tongue to without a trace is seamless. One goes right into the other, and it continues. But, like, on the vinyl release, and I'm not saying this because I'm like, Ugh, I like vinyl, and I'm pushing up my glasses again. Um, <laughs> since tongue is the last track on side A on the vinyl, it has an end to it. And then when you switch over to side B and start with it without a trace, it, you know, it starts up like it would from the digital version like was that something that you had like i'm finishing tongue this way and then i'm starting without a trace this way and then it ended up being seamless with digital and then you you know you knew you had to change it for vinyl or was that something else you know i think that's exactly what happened man i mean i'm dealing with it now on the new record um vinyl you know you can only fit so much on one side time wise or it starts to fuck up the sound and so, I I think I remember having to having to include the end of song because they uh, they didn't fit together um, on one side, and there was no intro for um, the track with Haley, so it had to start just the way it started. <laughs> I can imagine. I've never listened to the album on vinyl, but I'm sure it's a bit like, oh shit. Because that song comes in, you know, without a trace comes in, like really quick. You know, it starts off pretty vain. So yeah, I think it still works either way. I just thought it was interesting. Like as I was listening to the album, you know, getting ready for the interview here, I listened to both formats, digital and vinyl, and I was just like, oh, here is something that I never really noticed until now. Well, that makes two of us. <laughs> Nice. No, honestly, man, like all that stuff, um, usually on the digital or on the vinyl front, I don't really have much um, input because it's usually handled by, I don't master for the, uh, vinyl because it's a totally different process and I, I could probably figure it out, but it's pretty inexpensive to get someone who knows how to do it anyway to do it. So I usually just let that be taken care of. You know, up until the new record, um, now I'm like a lot more involved on the time process. And, and so, yeah, I could see that might have been just like something that happened. What was that? That was Tim cracking a bottle. It was a cork. Yep. You drinking brown, you drinking brown liquor? Yeah, I tried to hold the microphone. I tried to hold the microphone as far away as possible. uh, That has to stay because. Now everyone knows I'm as much of an alcoholic as you because I knew you were drinking good whiskey. What are you drinking tonight, there, Kyle? Yeah, what are you drinking? It's okay whiskey. Yeah, I've got Evan Williams single barrel. 
Okay. Uh, uh, I'm drinking Pinot Grigio like a fucking true punk rocker. <laughs> nice. And I'm the sober one. Yay me. Boo. <laughs> Boo. Well, next tour, we're going to have to hang out. We're, none of us are going to be sober. We're going oh, all yeah. the way, boys. Can I, so when I went and saw you the last time you were in Minneapolis, uh, I think the concert went to like 11-ish, baby. But I had to be up at 3.30 the next morning to go to work. And I did it. I stayed to the end and got no fuckets. It got trashed. Dude, you took care of me. <laughs> You're a fucking trooper for doing that because I was just an absolute fucking mess. <laughs> yeah. We talked about it before. You're a good we friend, pre- Eric. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. You you know, thank you. Dude, I think I got pretty fucking... I think I got pretty wasted myself in Minneapolis. Man. I think we went out to like... I think I met up with like this goth chick after the show, and she took me to this crazy goth bar. It was like multi-level. I yeah. want to say that was me. Yeah, she. Took oh, me. we know where you went. Yeah. You went to Ground Zero. It was a train wreck, dude. Yeah, but we had drugs, so everything was fine. Yeah, I mean that, that would definitely <laughs> take care of it. There's a lot of like Jurassic goths that hang out there. Uh. Jurassic. <laughs> Oh, they've been around Man. since the fucking beginning. That's a, such a good band name, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can save that for a side project. That should be the next Cure album title. <laughs> oh, oh, shit. <laughs> Yeah, you, I love Robert Smith, man, man. But what is happening to that dude? God, the Jurassic God. Yeah, he looks crazy now. Like I don't. He has to have some sort of a condition. Right. Hey, Robert, if you're listening, I'm sorry. It's, yeah, sorry, buddy. <laughs> He's not listening. <laughs> no, his condition be old and shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Holy shit. All right, where the fuck were we? Jesus. Ripper. Ripper. Yes, Ripper. Ripper. Talk about Ripper. This is Android Automatic, and you're listening to the Paradise Arcade. Ripper is my first delve into filler. <laughs> for real I, I uh we needed to have 10 tracks I think and at the time um Johnson Bodizic had put it into my head that we need to have you know like peaks and valleys for the record so like the whole listen would be more enjoyable and so Ripper is kind of it's the same there's a couple tracks on the album that are like that where it just gives you a little bit of a break from the um the barrage some of the heavier tracks are because even though um without a trace is a melodic track it's still pretty abrasive you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's still pretty loud so ripper kind of just gives you a minute to step back and uh i believe the song title is inspired by um the ripper from last action hero oh yeah yeah that's cool it's not though I mean, well, you know, still. That movie's cool, but the only... I was just going to say it last, actually. That was cool. Yeah. Was... Only because only only of how old we are. <laughs> if I showed my kids last action he were hero, they'd be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> it's a movie about... A movie about fake movies? But no. 
No, that's not cool. But we're cool. Yeah, that's that's what's the important thing here. They just mm. you had to be there. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's... And I, you know, I should have done my research. I should have listened to this album again because I haven't heard Ripper in years. But it's um, I think it's a pretty synth wavy track, isn't it? It's it's very much more along the lines of uh, the early EP in the rest of the album. That you know, that goes along in line with the question I was gonna ask is like how sick of you are like could you never play this anything from this album again and be okay? It'd be dope. <laughs> but every time I have to play fucking Genesee Avenue, it's fucking behemoth. It's gotta happen. But no, I don't know, dude. when you play it live it kinda gives you a different it gives it a different meaning because people react obviously whenever I play Genesee Avenue people are like oh thank god he's not playing all that lame new shit <laughs> oh god he's supposed to laugh man you yeah. got <laughs> no I would disagree like I want to hear all the new shit yeah. too yeah it's funny I get it it's a joke but it's also like man I, that that's kind of crushing like it I, made me feel sad yeah. actually yeah it's like I want to hear the new stuff yeah, this is not the reaction I was going for. Yeah, well, yeah. I appreciate the pity. I appreciate. The yeah. Pity. Okay, we'll laugh next time. <laughs> <laughs> we can just cut in laughing into this shit. Right there, edit that laugh in. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, there's laughing. Yeah, it's no. Please don't. Yeah. I think the silence will work better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! I suppose Genesee Avenue is almost like a theme song in a sort of way. Basically, it's like, here I am. Wanna, why don't I bring out the soul match? Treat you all to the uh, the nostalgia that never... Never mind. Man, I'm drunk. I'm going off on a rant. <laughs> yeah. those, songs, those songs do mean a lot to me, man. They they brought me like any kind of like visibility and slash or have become... You know, I'm sure it's like any other band like Nine Inch Nails playing fucking closer. closer. Yeah. There's no way he fucking likes that song anymore. But when you play it live, it has a different meaning every night. You know, you can relate it to what you're going through. And, and it's nice to have a, a few tracks that I can play and always know that people are going to be like, yeah, this is what I came here for. Have you ever thought about changing up those tracks and, and doing something slightly different and different interpretations because you talk about Nine Inch Nails Trent reinterprets songs sometimes to... yeah he does and he does it quite well yeah um but in conversation about one of his tracks that he does I don't think it maybe it was closer how he, he no I don't remember but it was one track that he's reimagined several different ways and several different locations and and people usually respond to it quite well um I don't know though. Uh, with with uh, simply people are really you know kind of set in their ways. I think if I reimagine Genesee Avenue too much, people might be a little like, why even play it? I can see it going both ways. Yeah, There'd be the people who are like, don't change it, and then there are people who are like, oh, finally. That's because you're a secret optimist. Bro. <laughs> it is definitely it's, secret. Oh, Sing it from himself. Ooh, me optimist? I don't know about that. <laughs> well, you just were optimistic. That just happened. And I have it recorded. A, so. And, yeah, and, and, and that's not getting edited. <laughs> so fuck you. 
<laughs> I'm gonna destroy your Shit. your veil of cynicism right here. I'm the most negative motherfucker on the planet. You can't ruin that. Man, I don't know, man. There's been some pretty negative people. Uh, but I'm like negative in a like lovable way. <laughs> oh, see, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. <laughs> you can't be miserable and negative and lovable at the same time. No way. That's totally my thing. Yeah, you, you can do it. You can do it. Uh, I feel like yeah. Uh, yeah, that's 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 my that's my that's basically my uh, aesthetic. Good aesthetic to have. I think I think if you if you talk to most of my friends, they'd be like, "Nah, he's not like that fun, but he's fun." Like they'd be like, "Man, he's kind of a downer. He wants to talk about real shit, but then he'll spill beer on everybody for fun." It's, I I feel we we are closer to each other right now. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, you always want to take care of people, make sure they're all right, and feed them good food and shit. So shut your mouth. As, as long as I can completely ruin myself, yes. That's, yeah, yeah, that's a prerequisite. Yeah. All right. Move, moving on. Bye. This is Destroyer. You're listening to the Paradise Arcade. So let's talk about Battery Bitch. Uh, Bathory Bitch is obviously inspired by Elizabeth Bathory. Uh, and she was, you know, not nice to say, but she was kind of a bitch to kill a lot of people. <laughs> I think she's like the most prolific serial killer of all time. I think she's accredited with like 250 murders or something crazy like that. That is a lot. <laughs> yeah, and she would just murder, you know, the uh, women. The, the underprivileged women that lived in her village she would murder them and bathe in their blood because for some reason she thought that would work. Obviously it didn't work. No. They walled her up in a room for, I don't know what, the last 20 years of her life. Something like that. So the, the, the song title is inspired by that. Um, the song itself, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty similar to Master in a way, structure-wise and sonically. Um, I think, um, you know, that song was easy to write because just thinking about her and the brutality of what she did, and when you really think about it, she's like, you know, like murdering virgins specifically, and um, poor virgins, which is for some reason more appalling because mm-hmm. she was a rich lady. Uh, um, I think she was probably one of the richest um, um, houses in her country at the time. Uh, so, I don't know, that, that story of her has always enthralled me, you know, her bathing in blood and all this and that and the other, you know, it's not verifiable whether she actually bathed in blood or drank it or whatever, right. but just the, the, the fact that she was rich and got away with so much murder has always been like a fascinating subject for me. Uh, I wish it was uh, better documented because <clears throat> there's just something about an aristocrat. It's it's almost like 
a real interview with a vampire movie. You know, like super fancy ass chicks just taking advantage of all the virgins around her from a matriarchal standpoint mm-hmm. and and literally bathing and drinking in their blood. Uh, it's just, just, I don't know how you hear that story and not be somewhat inspired. Inspired might be the wrong word. Um, <laughs> enthralled. Enthralled, yeah. Curious about it. Let me put my phone on Oh, I see. Um, really impressive. Thank you, <laughs> It's good, though. You know, it's good. It means, uh, Gonna come home and get tired and go to bed. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, no, Bathory Bitch. Um, I think the title really works well. You know, it's not nice to call anyone a bitch, but it's okay to call a woman a bitch who's murdered other women 250 times. Uh, right. And then some accounts uh, say she murdered up to like 700 people. So there's no telling. And her punishment was very light for her crime. They just locked her in her own castle. How, how horrible. Yeah. And and they didn't even take... Yeah. (laughs) It's it's Furnace Fest 1 or whatever. Yeah. What's the Furnace Fest, that festival that that guy like tried to do... No, that's not Furnace Fest. Fire Fest. Oh, yeah. He's the first version of Fire Fest. Lots of promises, lots of broken promises. Yeah, fuck. I could, I, if she just parted. And I think she actually kept murdering people while she was incarcerated. So. Not much of an incarceration if you can keep just doing the shit you were already doing. Exactly. And it's, you know, it, there's a whole lot of interesting things to that. And I think it kind of speaks to, like, even stuff that goes on today. We talk about, like, a Jeffrey Epstein kind of thing. You know, just, like, how power can protect you and lets you keep doing the shit that's absolutely heinous. Um, who, who, who killed Jeffrey Epstein? He didn't kill himself. No, no, no he didn't. <laughs> no. no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, probably. Or they let him. If he didn't, Hillary Clinton did it. I mean, yeah. Well, the lizard people <laughs> yes, did Yes, exactly. I'm pretty sure. So that's cool. Um, uh, what else do you have to say about, I mean, production-wise with the song? Is it? I mean, was there anything, like, uh, of note uh, writing that song? Was it kind of like you were thinking about that and it was, like, just inspiring the music, as you were saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the song itself has a very dark vibe. The arpeggios in it are very, um, you know, like, black keys, very um, dissonant. I mean, the whole album, I think, has a lot of dissonance in it. Uh, but it's done in a way that it still gives you a little bit of lightness. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like even Genesee Avenue has dissonance in it. Um, I think actually Bathory Bitch has some of the better dissonance. There is some laughing at the beginning that is supposedly um, two actual witches um, performing a ceremony um, laughing in reverse. I love that. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, for as dark subjects as that is, that's great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so let's talk about saxophone.
Dana Jean Phoenix. You're listening to Paradise Arcade. Mm. Sacrament on the album is really short, right? Yeah. And there's the extended release on Non Paradisi. Because the original song, I think, was like three minutes long. And that was another decision by Blood Music to shorten the track for flow. No, yeah, that that was shortened just to flow into the next track. And, um, uh, and then yeah, we- that's all it was. I think it was meant to sound more like um, like a a part in a, in a horror movie that's just kind of leading up to a kill story. When we get into because it, it is, yeah, it's very simple, very but it's very dark. Um, and sacrament, man, it's a cool word. It is. Do you have like a list of like names that you come up with and you just keep them? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna pocket this because I'm gonna use it later. <laughs> No, man. Uh, it's usually like literally last minute. Um, except for like the newest stuff that has vocals. I, you know, the vocals end up uh, playing a part in this song, the song title. But back then, it was just kind of, you know, inspired by metal band names or what I had in mind. Like Elizabeth Athley at the time, Sacrament <clears throat> just really worked on that album as far as the um the 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 theme goes being that it's uh satanic electronic record about sacrifice and blood rights and all that and everything so about the cool shit that's that's the that's the important thing about the cool shit yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) and then uh last but not least the behemoth itself Hey, this is Hotel Pools, and you're listening to the Paradise Arcade. Um, I think I actually wrote Behemoth last on that record, um, and it set me up for future future failures over and over again because it was it's a really good closing track. You know, it's one of the only old tracks I listen back to that. Um, I really am proud of still to this day. It's it's just catchy enough. It's dark enough. Um, it's got you know a whole journey that you go through on it. It's got the middle breakdown and then the end breakdown. And, you know, um, it's a simple track too. You know, the melodies, the da, 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 you know, it's super simple. I've actually had negative comments about how simple it is, but um. I've always come from, you know, we always bring up the best mode interviews, but the truth is that the best mode melodies are some of the best, but they're super simple and straightforward. And that's kind of where I come from melody wise on everything, even to this day. Uh, synth wise, it's going to be straightforward, you know, 12 notes to make up a bar. And that's what the limit was. And. I kind of got lucky on how the baseline turned out. That was, I think, more of a happy accident than something I did deliberately. Um, and then, of course, you know, the breakdown riff at the end, I wanted it to be like a hardcore, uh, like hardcore breakdown, something you can mock to. It's kind of backfired a few times live, 
<laughs> man, it would be like women up front, and then like I'd be playing this metal festival, and the women are enjoying the show, and then that song breaks out, and there's an actual monster that breaks out. I'm just like completely puzzled because I'm like, what are you guys moshing to, man? This is a <laughs> dance song. Is is that kind of the the contradiction of of dark synth, just in a in a general sense, where it it mixes almost two opposing ideas together. You still get people moshing at, at shows. I mean, it makes sense. And, and some of it makes sense, uh, you know, especially like with your, um, you know, with Possessor on, it, it makes sense because it, there's a lot more clear metal influence brought into it. But with other like dance songs, it's like, why are you moshing this dance? Uh, man. <laughs> because I can't. <laughs> Because I can't. <laughs> because I'm a metalhead and I have no like self awareness. That's awesome. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, we talked about that in the last interview. How many metal shows have you been to where I think you mentioned somebody drinking beer off the floor and that's yeah. not <laughs> not safe. It's not safe. But Don't you know, that's what makes it. metal fun, is that it's not safe. Uh but yeah, I think it's it's a fucking hilarious thing that metal, a lot of metal people have co-opted what we do, um, and I would, you know, I really, I really don't have an answer to why they've done it. I mean, I I get it. Behemoth is basically structured as a metal song, as it, you know, it's where I come from. But um, it's not a metal song. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not, and. I definitely don't. I never thought this project would harsh people, like people getting basically crowd killed at my shows. It's been a weird thing. Yeah, that's yeah. And um, and it's going to continue to be that way as you do. You think as you bring more live components into it, because then it starts to bridge more back into kind of where you started in metal. Sort of, man, but um, the 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 attendees, the people that come and see me live now, has slowly started to change, and it's become more of like a mix between like the synth heads and like more of like the goth scene. So it's a little less that's cool metal people and a little less abrasive, which I'm all for because you know I love metal and I love metal shows, but. I, I definitely do not enjoy the abrasiveness of the crowd and the, the willingness to start a confrontational situation. Uh, so the more people that I can attract that are just into the music just for the sake of the music, uh, I think it's better. And it's getting that way, finally, after you know, seven years. Yeah, I think with your musical pr- progression, with as you've grown... And just being around long enough, I think it's it. Your music has reached a lot more people, a variety of people per se, and and I I hope that that trend of the metalhead kind of, and I don't know, you probably could speak to it better than I can because I just live in my own little bubble. I'm not, you know, touring, um, but hopefully that that metalhead co-opting the the dark synth live shows to start some shit maybe starting to subside a little bit. Like, oh, it's not the next scene to start some bullshit it's it's a different thing yeah i think 
it's funny because you know it's finally starting to have a life of its own. Like we were getting fans from a bunch of different genres, and now it seems it's finally becoming its own thing. After all these years, it's finally like I have you know like a ghost cult following. And my social data has this following, and that's mainly what you're seeing at the shows now. And everybody kind of has like a similar viewpoint of how they're going to enjoy the show. Like, there's less violence, there's less weirdness, there's less people talking shit. Um, it's become, I don't know, it's become wholesome for lack of a better word. People are people are enjoying themselves now, like truly enjoying themselves. And the first like four or five years of us doing this was like growing pains, and it was like people didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know why they liked it. They didn't know how to act. And and a lot of people that were coming to the shows were like they didn't have like friends that were into their music. And now we're getting where there are groups of friends that like the music together, which is game changing. That means, you know, we're reaching more people and I don't know, it just feels more loving in a way. Yeah. Uh, I will say that like when we went to your show the last time you were around, I think we went with Kyle, was it like a group of like sort of like four or five people that we knew? <laughs> and uh and then and then we and then as we have continued like doing this thing and and with our own little musical community there's been just a ton more people like were you at that show too and so it's just grown where we've we've gotten to know more and more people in the scene that are into the same thing and i'm like oh you're cool we can hang out it's fine well to me man that's what makes it seem like now it may be more of a scene than it ever was because there are groups of people that enjoy it together. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the early days, you know, there was a lot of loners coming to the shows and meeting each other at the shows. So, I don't know. It, it feels good to know that, you know, you guys have a group of friends that are into it. You can share it with. Because mm-hmm. I know when I was growing up, same with you guys, you know, we were listening to bands like Deftones and Ford and all that shit. You know, we had a group of friends that were into it. Mm-hmm. We all influenced each other. And I think modern music is kind of suffering on that level because there's so much of it. It's so digital. Anyway. Yeah. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Definitely been to a lot of shows by myself in the last 10 years. So I, yeah. I, I definitely feel that. I feel like Kyle's the person who's always like the first to a thing to be like, this this <laughs> thing is actually really good, and no one ever was like, shut up. And then people get eventually around thing. to what he's like, oh, yeah, they're really cool. And Kyle's like, yeah, I was saying that five years ago. Yeah, please go to this show with me. No one wants to go to the show. <laughs> I go to this show, and then later on, they're like, dude, this is really cool. I was like, yeah, well, you could have gone to the show with me. Too fucking late. Fucking late, you should listen to me. <laughs> and now I had to be the guy standing by myself next to the person who had the epileptic seizure and then stole my pick, and <laughs> it was a big thing. <laughs> man, I've, I've been it. I've been that guy. That's it. In college, I've got man. plenty of us. Yeah, that's crazy. 
Well, I want to thank you for coming on and talk behemoth with us. And um... hold on, I've got one more question. Oh, whoa, okay. You were being quiet. Here's the thing. Yeah. So, you know, going back early on, you were mentioning stuff that you had sampled before. I would have never guessed that you were sampling things. Just didn't know. I mean, is that something that you still do to this day, or was that something just for behemoth? Um, I did it a few times on the first couple of records, but as things started to grow, um, copyright claims started to be more of an issue. And now, uh, especially on Validation and the new record, um, no, it's all original. You can't anymore. It's weird because Century Media is under Sony, so you would think they could handle that shit. But the weird thing is when you reach out for a copyright claim, you never, they never answer you. And if they do answer you, they're like, yeah, we want $20,000 for 45 seconds. Like, fuck off. I'm not sure how that works. Is it is it any amount of sample, or is it like 10 seconds of a sample? I Because I, I've heard a lot of people get in trouble for that shit, and I, n- I never know, like... It depends, man. I mean, I know people who have pretty largely popular samples on their music that have not gotten hit. Um... I think it's a matter of time, and I, it just depends on who hears it, man. Like, and how if that person cares, you know. I don't think John Carpenter would give a fuck if he heard uh, a Halloween sample on one of my songs. I really don't. I think he would be flattered because he's just that kind of guy. You know, he's made his money, he's done well. Why would he attack another artist? Because like, he really looks at himself as a true artist. You know, it's he's not just a a director of horror films, he, he makes music, and, you know, he actually really appreciates what we've all done in lieu of his work. It's kind of interesting to hear some of the things he's said about Synthwave. Um, he's humbled by it, which is really cool. But, you know, if you get, like, a, a certain executive that owns something, hearing it, it's possible that you can get hit with something. But no one I know personally yeah, because there was a, a thing for a while, at least like with venues, especially where um, a lot of the the rights holders would send people in for DMCA violations. Like it would be like live in a club, so there'd be a DJ in, and then they would note every single song, and then they'd come around and slap that venue with all the violations. And no, they still do it. You have to uh, now. You have to write down your entire set list. And uh, who who wrote it? Uh, what company owns it? And it has to be turned in at the end of the night. So. Yeah, that's it's not still a thing. And that's kind of weird. Like pain ass. Yeah. Wow. All right. Thanks, James, for joining us. Break it down, Behemoth. Uh, really appreciate that. I think it was really insightful, and I you know I think a lot of people are gonna enjoy it. So until next time, this is Eric. This is Kyle. Thanks, James. This is- Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm a positive.